Well, we're standing before Steph Lively, which is kind of, um, this thing is kind of funny. Hang on one sec. Kind of dear to me because I shown this piece yes. before. When was that? 2003. 2003, I think. yeah. So um, let's start with talking about the materials that you use. We could describe some of what those things are. Sure. Um, and I'm interested in why you choose to work with these materials and how you got started working with these materials. Sure. Um, well, obviously there's some tree branches. Um, there are swimming noodles, which are cool toys. The, um, the yellow angle at the corner is made out of that foam stock that's just, you know, mitered to make a right angle. And then the other pieces of yellow foam are from the same pool noodle, but just, just trimmed down. Mm -hmm. um, they're felt. How do you trim those down? I just cut them with a razor blade. Uh -huh. And then, but this one in particular, you know, it, it almost breaks down into a smaller, um, oh, I see. A smaller so you're just cord. Out one of those edges. Yeah, I just cut them out. Mm -hmm. But in the other sculptures, I, you, you know, kind of I carve them, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more intricately. Um, there's felt, uh, paper mache. There's some cotton batting that you use for stuffing pillows, and then there's wire um, that's covered in plaster bandages, and then covered with phloem which is this um, Nickelodeon product. It's a toy. It's like slime that has little styrofoam pellets in it, which I started working with in about 1995. And <clears throat> every time I would get like halfway through a piece, they discontinued the color I was using. So I had to figure out how to um, make it myself. And it took me about a year, but so this is my, my homemade version of it. And, and how do you make it? What's in it? The styrofoam bubbles? Some I kind of I can't. Pigment. I don't oh, want to give it away. Okay. Okay. But there, but it's but it's pigmented with acrylic. Okay. And then there's a, like a loose fill styrofoam pellet that I that I um, mix into it, and it it's great. It's got some structural properties, but it's also great as like coating a surface skin. Yeah. And then the other the black is just black spandex. I started this body of work before I had actually begun bringing branches into the work. And I was finding, working on this scale, which is about six or seven feet, that the sculptures were buckling under their own weight because so many of my materials, um, you know, are, they, they're flexible. Mm -hmm. So when I first started bringing the branches in, I was very apprehensive to do so because it just seemed too much like, it, seemed, it seems crazy at the time to even mention it now, but at the time it seemed like I was making I would be making some sort of statement about nature versus industry or prefer preferencing nature over another one. But I really just brought them into the sculpture to um, get like a ready-made organic line. Mm -hmm. But then once I brought them in and started combining them with the other materials, um, it seemed like they just belonged together and it didn't feel like there was uh, a political statement being made about one material versus another mm -hmm. one, but maybe more of a political or social statement about the <clears throat> kind of like the democratic relationship that they have to one another. Mm -hmm. And a kind of blending. Like I'm interested in in how they become hybrids. In a way in a way it's almost difficult to tell where the branch and so to speak and then the wire begins. They become so cohesive. Mm -hmm. So in that sense you you know you've blended them together so that in a somewhat seamless way, even though you can identify 
the difference, the, that dependency, as you described it, I think is really important. Transformation is important. Mm -hmm. And I want all of my materials to, you know, nod to their origins. I don't want any material to not to be identify. Beyond. Yeah, I want it to, I want it to go beyond what it is, but I, but I don't want it to, um, you know, but I want it to do both. To look like the thing it was originally. Right. Yeah. So I think in, I think sort of paying attention to the way things connect and the seams between the different materials, that, that is part of the transformation. Right. Right. The black spandex was left over from um, a costume that I made in graduate school, this performance <laughs> piece that was sitting around the studio. Wow. So some materials were really around the studio, not as materials that you intended necessarily to enter into the sculpture. I think actually that black ball at the end was, it was actually part of a performance piece I did in graduate uh -huh. school. I remember you showed the slide. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't that one, but it was, it was one that I did during that time. So what about like the felt and the cotton batting? Were those things you thought would end up in sculpture eventually that you just had around? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, these things are stuffed with cotton batting, and I don't know why I had the felt around. I think I just bought a whole bunch of colors of them because, you know, I think about my materials like paints, and different materials have, um, they have different opacities, translucencies, different textures. They, so I just collect. And, yeah, in the early 90s, it seemed like thing to do in sculpture was to bring some new wacky material into your work. I remember Charles Long was making, yeah, Charles Long was making sculptures with coffee grounds. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah, ever yeah, saw I've seen those. That. Um, there was another artist that I was friendly with who was um, making sculpture out of out of balloons and mm -hmm. you know he was making like beaded sculptures and mm -hmm. so going just, to the craft store was really yeah fine. I never I never work with. Um, with ready-mades, like you'll never see a chair in my work. It's interesting to me and important, I think, to to differenti differentiate you from Sarah in the sense that you continue to create discrete objects um, that are freestanding, uh, not connected to the architecture in any you know deliberately specific way or integrated way, and so. That seems like an important distinction, and yet I, I think that even walking through the show with people, people see that. After I finished graduate school, I have recommitted myself to making to making um, autonomous objects. I had I had made installation before, yeah. um, and in my installation, everything was very much sculpted. You know, I did when I, I love Sarah's work and I particularly love its relationship to painting um, uh -huh. more than anything. So stockholder also then would be an important Yeah, definitely. And when I started this body of work I, I had to define myself, define my work against theirs. You know, what what is right. going to separate it from theirs. Um, so I set some rules for myself. One of them well among them were that the works had to be freestanding and that I couldn't use any paint um, because I wanted to make reference to painting, um, but right without paint, unlike in a purely, um, purely sculptural materials. Part of the feeling I get when I do installation or when I see installation um, feels to me like I'm 
uh, feels like a very theatrical practice. But I wanted to refocus on the difficult problems of sculpture. You know, how do you make a freestanding object that um, you know that can support itself, um, that has balance, and you know, all all the formal concerns of traditional sculpture, but also takes on some of the challenges of installation, um, and you know, makes reference to painting. And when I first started making these pieces, I was thinking about making three-dimensional paintings. I wanted to work with the spontaneity of an abstract painter, but that's really difficult when you have to deal with, with gravity. Right. Really work on. Yeah, and materials that don't, um, where there's no prescription for how they connect to one another. Right. You know, I mean, just even figuring out, how like, like yeah, adhesives yeah. is is tricky. How to get some of these things to to connect together. So, well, um, I think, yeah. So that was a, the, that was a starting place for me. Um, I think you've touched on a couple of really important things in terms of both your work and the exhibition. Um, I mean, the premise of the show, one of the premises, and there are a few. I would say, and, and in a way, I, in a funny way, I gave myself the same parameter going into it. Uh, around why the show only include freestanding objects. I wanted to look at artists who had committed themselves to that notion of creating a freestanding object that, that had to stand on its own in space, just as you described, that were you know, moving away from installation, um, moving away from an immersive environment. And I think my interest in examining that was maybe part of the reasons that the artists in the show do that as well, which is um, the way that, that this kind of work is really grounded in history and, and as you say, you know, takes up the formal challenges of what sculpture is and, and, and by doing so really asks the question, what is sculpture? What does it mean to be a sculptor? What does it mean to um, identify myself as working within that medium? And if we, if we call earthwork sculpture and if we call installation sculpture, if that definition has gotten so broad, then, and rightfully so on some level, but how can we start to think about within that larger definition certain ways of working that go together in some sense. And I think, you know, from a theoretical perspective, Johanna Burton, the other catalog contributor, and I both sort of started with Krauss's essay, interestingly from the 70s, about sculpture in the expanded field, where she's asking that same question, you know, 35, 40 years ago. And it's a question that I think is still really relevant. Um, so, I'm, I'm interested in that choice by all of you, and particularly for you who had who have been doing installation, who've been doing performance, and and even more so, it was really this very deliberate choice to kind of come back to this, work with this as the parameters. I was actually looking at Casper Danish Friedrich paintings, and this <coughs> piece we should maybe say is called My Type Vista. Yeah, this is My Type Vista. And what, what year is this one, Andrew? This is 2002. Okay. And. <coughs> What I liked about, I mean, I think that there's the color palette. It's kind of maybe reflective of his his palette, but um, I liked um, his sense of deep space. And so, what I had been trying to achieve in this piece was that um, I don't know how effective it is now, but when you looked um, down. when you looked down, it looked like you were felt like you were very far away looking down on pools. And then when you were standing in front of it, it felt like you were maybe up in the treetops or experiencing the landscape on a different scale. Mm -hmm. And I, I just like that 
scale shift mm -hmm. in the piece. And, and that's something you find in his paintings. Yeah, that there's a really, that there's a sense of deep space and a strong scale shift. But I was also looking at his palette, uh -huh. um, which was of interest to me. Well, um, that's so interesting because the palette for me, and maybe I get this also from the title, My Thai Vista, which is a funny title. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and knowing that you grew up, <laughs> knowing that you grew up in Miami, I really start thinking about Miami with this. It seems to have the kind of Art Deco yeah. colors of the architecture there, as well as you know the waterfall quality of this piece, and also um, right. Mist Over Miami, which clearly has Miami in the title. Um, that, that seems to somehow the, yeah the be Miami to that the too. Miami connection definitely comes out, and a lot of it too is you know I don't I don't paint my materials so. It's, it's funny. It's really funny the way that some, you know, some of the colors that these kind of industrial materials come in because this blue, in some places it looks really neutral, but in other places it's, it's pretty, it's pretty aggressive. And then you imagine that it must have some kind of purpose, like with the swimming noodles, for example. They're always really bright, which I think must be a safety thing. You know, so right. that kids. I think it's just. You just think I think it's just for kids. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Well. <laughs> so, you know, who knows, but I think it's interesting to think about how these products or, or materials, right, how they come in these colors and what these colors might mean. The other thing I want to point out on this piece, which I love, is that I keep finding, you know, I thought I really looked at it <laughs> closely, and I have, but I keep finding little moments that I didn't really notice before. Uh -huh. the, the use of the origami paper in these little parts that are carved into the... Um, branches and then the way that you, you've used the flow I have you know there are parts on the branches where I didn't notice it before and I guess sort of the intricacy of the wire too is really interesting I think this piece it just has a lot of little moments mm -hmm. really nice little surprises yeah things to find the tape around the top of this branch and I think that's true in, in all the work that you know every time and I've been having this really great experience throughout the show of noticing new things in the works almost every time I walk through. So it just, to me, is work that's very generous in that way. Now we're at the Mist Over Miami State. It's a Miami. Lake Miami. Um, <laughs> I think I probably say that wrong. Oh, but what I wanted to say also, the other the other painters that I was, that I cared a lot about yeah. were um, Jonathan Lasker. Uh -huh. I used to look at a lot. Yeah. And, um, is that for the line? There's some, it's about the, it's not just about the line, but it, something about his drawing feels very sculptural to me, his painting, and also um, the relationships between the different marks on each paint. Yeah. They're, they're kind of these ambiguous relationships, but there's definitely... Some are codependent. Yeah, and there's, there's definitely some, all different kind of like power relationships between... Mm -hmm. His, um, you know, his sets of marks yeah. that I, I found pretty fascinating, which I think is is very present in your work. And we've talked a little bit already about the dependency, the interdependency, we could call it, between the different aspects. And I think, you know, in a very physical way, the viewer can can feel that. And this is a great example, Mr. Lake Miami, that if you know, if I were to remove that swimming noodle or I were to take that branch away, 
there's a sense that the piece really would topple over. Yeah. So the elements <laughs> are quite literally dependent on each other. But I think, moreover, it references a kind of system that we can imagine to be, you know, the relationship between people. You and I have talked about the city. Right. Um, the sort of network of the city and, and how there's a, a both spontaneity, but also a kind of domino effect, trigger effect. Like if something happens in one space, that might cause something else to happen, and it kind of moves rhizometrically throughout the city. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and actually, I wanted to mention something that I don't think I've talked to you about, um, which is 9-11. Because I was in in New York during that time, and, um, you know, you try to think about how how to make sense of it. And, but it, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into, like, what it means, because it's obvious to everyone what the significance of it, but... Um, I really started to think in the abstract about cities as being in flux and, you know, the city is on every level, you know, from the macro to the micro, from the metaphorical to the literal, it is like growing and collapsing at the same time, basically. Um, And to me, that is what these sculptures are about, that this is this, this is a moment where it is, it's, it is just barely, it's barely standing. It's like... It could go everywhere. Yeah. It could keep growing. It could keep we growing. Can imagine it growing. But there's something about the, the way that it's balanced, that it's like you've caught it in a moment of equilibrium, uh-huh. but, you know, it could kind of like grow and fall or mutate in some direction. And I like that it is just like kind of on the verge of collapse. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, in any in any natural system or, you know, in an ecosystem, that's that's when change takes place. And change doesn't happen when something's fixed and static. It has right. to be, it has right. to be moving um, so it's for, something, for something to happen. Though, even though it's a little bit tense. Yeah, and it's a, it's a vulnerable moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's a kind of precariousness throughout the exhibition, I'd say, some more than others. Um, but I think for sculptors, to embrace that in their work is a really, it's an interesting position, it's also kind of a risky position, because we still, for all of the variety of sculpture that's made today, we still have kind of a disposition to think that sculpture is sturdy, um, or solid, or, um, you know, it's so object-based that we, we feel that uh, it doesn't have that sense of precariousness, and, and so I think for, for all of you to kind of take that up as one very, very important characteristic of the work is, is an unusual decision to have. Well, and, you know, as I said, um, when I started making these, I was really thinking about, when I first started, even before Step Lively, um, I was thinking about abstract painting and wanting to work loosely and quickly. And so in order to do that, you have to keep the joints loose. And, um, you know, I was building them sort of like networks before you ever would hear things together. Right. Well, I knew for this piece, for example, I knew I wanted to do something at the bottom that looked kind of like a pool and that, I don't know if you've ever been to the Thumb Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, but yeah. you got to go look at the ceiling in there because it's, you Is know. that what it looks like? Kind of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's got this, just this like, it, it looks kind of like this. It's very deco and 
Mm -hmm. um, it's fabulous. Anyway, you got to check it out when you're in Miami. But um, so I knew I wanted to do some something like that at the bottom. But there's so much um, kind of doing and undoing and trying to get the piece to just stand that once I get to a point where like it stands and I can like take a few steps back um, and it looks okay, that that's that's a mile mark. Mm -hmm. And then there and then I can kind of build off of that. Um, but yeah, so I'm trying to think what it was in this piece. I think it just had to do with getting this kind of section steadied. But then yeah, but then, you know, you go in and you, you add more of this, and, you know, I would go back in and cut this hole in the styrofoam so that it would penetrate the styrofoam. I had such a funny relationship to this piece, making it, and um, I just thought of this as, like, my slacker sculpture. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know why. why. Do I don't know why. It was just it was just the process of making it. Um, it just didn't it didn't come together with as much conviction as some of the other sculptures. So do you I mean I, I do feel like there's something slightly new or different happening in these two. Yeah. So are you do you think you know what that yes, is? Yes, I do. What is I think that? I know what it is. Um, well, there's about a like a three-year, two-year jump. Mm -hmm. And in between these pieces, I was working on a much larger scale. Right. And so I had to think... But also smaller with the... Um, with the Scholar's Rocks, scholar's right. Rocks. So, there's, so there's two things going on. And these two pieces um, are definitely informed by a whole bunch of work I did that's not represented in the show. Um, but I had to work much more structurally with... This um, almost reminds me of one of the Scholar's Rocks. Like before it's finished or something. Well, this, um, in those years I started working with the white styrofoam. Mm -hmm. I started working with it in sheets and carving them into columns. And then after that, carving them into these very intricate scholar's rock forms. Mm -hmm. Carving them from a block. And then, after working with it in a block, I started composing scholar's rocks out of um, chunks of styrofoam and right. flown. Right. And connecting them and then going back and carving. So that's... This and is then, building off of that. Okay. Um, where I take the chunks of styrofoam, you know, connect them together with the um, with the spray foam, and then go back in and, and carve the styrofoam out again. Right. So yeah. So that so that technique was developed. But I think that they're like a little bit more rectilinear uh -huh. than um, than the other ones, and that's I think a direct influence of having worked on a larger scale. Just having to work with, you know, more um, structural stock. Okay, what I liked about right when I first saw Bryce Martin's work in the Cold Mountain series was how the connection he was making between <laughs> between abstract painting and language mm -hmm. and kind of building off of the calligraphic mark yeah. to make the abstract paintings. Yeah. And so I became. At that point, it was very unfarmed for me, but I became interested in, um, you know, disciplines that <clears throat> that adopt the practices of other disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in this case, I started thinking about abstract painting, Chinese landscape painting. I think a lot about cinema mm -hmm. when I make these pieces. Mm -hmm. um, 
can you describe that? Well, I'm trying to make, I'm, I'm not working on all of our compositions. I'm, in a way, yeah, I'm trying to create a narrative structure, um, which I think is what happens in those Chinese landscape paintings, is that within, you know, a scroll um, or a frame, yeah, and you, you see, you know, a narrative moment in one area, you know, where, like, there'll be people in a, in a shop, and then there'll be people doing something on the river, and there'll be someone, you know, contemplating um, nature in another area, and they're all kind of networked together into this overarching narrative. Um, and since there's so many different points of perspective, it really incorporates an element of time, because you're seeing so many different moments of a story, but all at the same time. Right. Um, and so, and that's so, and that is so much like cinema as well. Um, I love the way that that um, the space of the page and the space of the image kind of fluctuate. Um, and to me, that kind of translates in my work as the relationship between two D and three D. Um, and what else? I love that they kind of they're these really intricate landscapes, but they're also but they're also very abstract in a way to me. They well, certain periods they verge on abstraction. I think they're as being really stylized. They are very stylized. It's very stylized in a way, and in a way, you're one of those in quality. Yeah, I guess they are. I mean, when your work is so close to you, it's hard to. You know, think of your own work as stylized, but I guess my work is stylized. Yeah. Yeah. Just controlling nature somehow, containing it, which of course we do as human beings all the time. And Miami is such a great example of that. <laughs> this great hybrid city where a hurricane can show up, you know, every multiple times a year, um, and, and yet people live there and deal with it, and you know, manicure their lawns and all that other stuff. Right. Um, so I see. That is a very contemporary reference, and then also I sit down in the Chinese paintings. That's really interesting. Also, when I started this work back in, I don't know, I guess it was around 2000, I started to think about images because, you know, when you work in New York now and you make sculpture, it's like the most impractical yeah. thing you can do. I mean, your studio is expensive. Real estate's expensive, materials are expensive, they're really tough to sell. It's, to it's, a, it's a dubious practice. And so, you know, I started to think about images and how dominated our culture is by images and how do you justify bringing another clunky object into the world? And how do you acknowledge the dominance of images if you're going to commit yourself to making a sculpture? And um, so I decided that maybe I would make sculpture that started from the image to kind of acknowledge its, you know, its, its presence and um, its power. So. But I also wanted to um, give sculpture some sort of power over the image um, and show its importance to me. So I decided that I would work with those landscapes which are representations of an actual landscape and somehow kind of rescue the landscape and bring the landscape out of the image back into right back into three dimensions. And to play with your, your eye too, like what what is vision like how, how has our eye been affected? Like to even think about the idea of how has our eye been affected in looking at 
three-dimensional objects having been so conditioned to, to experience things as, as an image. So I'm hoping that these sculptures um, are playing with that notion of vision.